when you're at the top of the ladder, there's a gap between you and all of those relationships. You have a lot of external relationships, but you don't know exactly what's motivating those relationships, right? Just how much those are friendships developing or how much those are just about the power base in which you reside or the thing that they might want to get or the barter that happens. Oh, because you have a title. Because you have it. Hello, and welcome to Conversations. That's T-H-O-M-versations, where the H makes all the difference. How the H are you? I'm Tom Cocaine, your host, and uh, I'm doing pretty good, thanks. You know, it's, it's so nice to be in spring. You know, you get to see uh, the trees and the buds on the trees. They're growing. Grass is just going nuts right now. I get to mow the lawn at least once a week. Otherwise, it gets overgrown so quick. Um, and you get to see the splash of color. Like the tulips are blooming like crazy right now. It's just, it's really beautiful. It's nice. You know, another thing is to bring those flowers that you see growing and bring them inside. Really changes kind of the, the atmosphere inside a house, you know. Kind of freshens it up a bit. So what are you doing this spring? Are you getting out, getting about, maybe going for some long walks, doing a little hiking, getting out in the natural environment? Ah, well, that's one of the major topics today with Dr. Steve Daly Larson. Yes, he is currently a professor of natural resources and society at the University of Idaho. He's also been the dean of the College of Natural Resources and also a past president of the University of Idaho. He's interim for a year, a little more in a year. And we'll talk about ecology, greenhouse gases, carbon, the pluses and minuses of that, plus the connection between people, the environment, and industry. That's big. We also talk salmon habitat, another big topic around here in the Northwest, and that's forest fires. You'll hear about all those topics, plus about the trials and travails of what he describes as CEO-type positions, how difficult they are, but also very rewarding. And you'll hear how, and that's in the second half of this conversation. And you know, as the weather's getting really nice, maybe you're going outside, working up a sweat, want a cold beer. How about making that beer a tall, cold one from the Moscow Brewing Company? They are located here in Moscow, Idaho, in the good old United States of America, and they are committed to creating the highest quality ales from ingredients found throughout the Inland Northwest. Locally grown grains and hops, and the quality of flavor, the consistent quality, that just leaves you wanting another one. So stop in today, enjoy a selection of ales featuring flavorful IPAs, rich stouts, and everything in between. Check out Moscow Brewing Company on Facebook and at moscowbrewing.com. I think I'm going to have one here when I'm done doing this, actually. That sounds really good. Well, Steve Daly Larson and I did not drink any beers recorded early in the day, but I'd like to grab one with him sometime soon. But let's talk to him. Here's Steve Daly Larson. Do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, Sure. I'm Steve Daly Larson, and I'm a uh, 27 years resident of Moscow, where I've been not all at one time, in two different stays. I've been a, uh, first I was a graduate student here, and then I was a staff member, and then I was a research faculty member, then I went away for 25 years. And then in my second 17 or 18 years, I've been university president and dean and 
in the vice president for research's office and then my last four years back in my faculty job. Extremely rewarding way to end up where the, uh, the mission of the university is really hitting the road, you know, where the tires are on the ground with the students. It's, it's been cool. So that's my university self in Moscow and my other self uh, on the second time here. I came uh, accompanied by my spouse, Diane. This is absolutely amazing person and partner, and we made two beautiful young things. Anna, who's now a junior in college at Denver University, majoring in international affairs and women's and gender studies, and my son Kieran, who's a sophomore at Colorado State University, and uh, they're both happy as plums in Colorado, enjoying themselves. So we feel like uh, we've been successful as parents and spawning successful kids who are really motivated and and fun to be around. And Moscow's been an amazing place that we have come to love. So I'd have to say, as part of introducing myself, is that uh, Diane and I, as a pair, have decided to stay here. Uh, so uh, we will continue to introduce ourselves as being from Moscow. It's a big part of our lives. It's a great place. It is a great place. Yeah. You know, and uh, you know, I've I've had uh, several different people here just who because we, we live here, this yeah. podcast studio is here. <laughs> but I've I talked to, you know, former mayor and uh, people on the city council and just, man, we're lucky to have some really smart people yeah. work for the city here. We are. The city's full of really uh, bright, motivated people, and there's lots of theories and opinions uh, about why that is. I think the university and other employers attract uh, couples, partners, pairs, families uh, with bright, motivated people. And, you know, one comes with a job waiting for them. The other one gets into the community and makes a difference. And uh, sometimes they do both together. Uh, that's, I think, what really makes Moscow click. I also think not having an interstate highway here is the reason why, while we evolve slowly but surely, culturally here, um, a lot of things stay the same. You know, when I first moved here, one of my favorite things about downtown, and I, 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 wish they do more with it is that it's a one it's pedestrian priority downtown zone i love that yeah. and the other thing is that it's i think it's so smart to have main street uh split by two highways so you've got two highways two different highways <laughs> going north and south yeah. that uh uh divide main street I mean, that's has to keep it thriving yeah. and it's rare that you see a store front <clears throat> downtown close and not within a month or two reopen um with something new in it it's, you know, it's been fun to watch that. We were actually here when the city made the decision to remove the traffic from Main Street. Oh, yeah. When I moved here in 1976, I pulled, I had moved here from Washington, D.C. I pulled up on the hill on the north side of town with my trailer with all my belongings in the back, and I could see the other end of town. <laughs> and I said, oh, my, what have I done? Yeah. I uh, yeah. Uh, and so then lived in that first nine years here, became uh, eventually became a home, homeowner uh, near the studio here mm -hmm. and uh, enjoyed becoming more involved in town. And in that time period, the city went through many transformations, including the emergence of real live restaurants for the first time. <laughs> uh, Some really good uh, restaurants now. They're actually, these were excellent. precursors to the ones that are here now. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of the end of there's only taverns on Main Street. Mm. Um, there's also a period of time when uh, the highway was divided, pulled off of Main Street. Mm -hmm. And I remember the merchants, uh, many of them were expressing some concern 
they liked the idea of a pedestrian district, but they were scared of losing the drive-by. You know, the, oh, oh yeah, I need to stop there. I need to park and go in. Mm -hmm. And so lots of angst over that, and it evolved over a, a, you know, a few years. Um, so getting the traffic off of the main road, I think, is one of the great, I agree with you, one of the great, has made Moscow even greater. It's allowed things like the farmer's market. Farmer's market, yeah. We're, I mean, we're nationally renowned for that. Yeah, and you know, let's talk a bit more about Moscow because it, it was. Uh, I, I was talking to a coworker, and she was saying, you know, Moscow's star is ascendant uh, <laughs> because it's, you know it's been in how many places as one of the great uh, different when I say places, different uh, publications, etc. That's saying, you know, it's one of the great places to live in the United States. We just got that again, didn't we? Yeah, we just got the number one, and SEL even talked about us. Yeah, yeah. Saturday Night that's Live. A, that's a that's a. You mean uh, uh, SNL? Sorry, SEL. Yeah. SEL. Yeah. <laughs> SEL probably talked about us too, but yeah. SNL talked about us. Yeah. Although they didn't make much of a point of us, they uh, they were they were talking about the rankings in general. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, having raised children here, uh, having uh, really never. Well, I mean, we've experienced our really terrible dark moments. Yeah. Uh, we have. Yeah. And I think. It's hard to not have those no matter where you are, how distant you are from the mainstream. But um, in general, this is a place where people come uh, and say they're going to be for a couple of years. And then there's a lot of them still around telling the story 20 years later. Yeah. And then we decided, <laughs> yeah. and partly because of children, yeah. I have to say, uh, a lot of that is about this being a place to have a family. Whatever that family looks like, people are happy to do it here. No, and and uh, one of the reasons we bought the house we live in is because of just walkability. Yeah. That was a very important thing for us. It was like we could walk downtown um, and not only that, but schools are pretty close here. You can go, you can have a kid from here walk to school. I walked further when I was a kid to get to school and uh, it's a safe community. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's a, if there's a bad neighborhood in Moscow, I don't know where it is. I would, I would say avoid the, the, the university area. It can get a bit, uh, you know, crazy on Saturday nights. Saturday night, yeah. But, um, you know, no, there's no, there's nothing where, you know, I'm, I'd be afraid to go. Right. Maybe even that, at night. Yeah. Maybe that scale, maybe just, you, you know, until you become a certain size, you don't it really get be. isolated sort of, uh, ghettoish situations, uh, that are bad. Yeah. Moscow's all good. Moscow's all good. Yeah. Uh, well, okay, so yeah. we're, we we agree. Yeah, we agree on that. <laughs> no disagreement. Uh, so, uh, you know, I I did a bit of research on you to find out about who you are, and you know, it took me a while to because uh, normally I get somebody in and I talk to somebody and I have an idea already what I want to talk to them about. And it took me a while to figure that out, but you know, your your main focus, your your life. Um, has been around forestry, correct? Uh, around natural resource management, natural resource broadly. Management. Okay, mm -hmm. okay. forestry is a component of that. Okay, so I I have real basic questions. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, one, what is a natural resource? Uh -huh. So a natural resource is something that's naturally occurring. So it's in nature. It's around us. We can see it. It's either physical, like rock or water, or it's biological, like plants, or bugs, or birds, or people. Uh, and uh, those are resource, those are natural, naturally occurring things. Humans assign resource to that. They say, we can utilize those. So resource is really about utility. Uh, 
So natural resources are the things that we use to support our life, uh, support us thriving. Uh, and um, over time, our relationship with those resources has evolved dramatically from seeing them as endlessly abundant to seeing them as scarce and uh, realizing the damage we can do and adjusting our behavior so that we don't undermine that resource's of, uh, ability to reproduce itself. That's basically what sustainability is, and that's, I think, what our, that's our current societal or cultural milieu around the human natural resource relationship. So it's basically is a oh, natural resource is a consumable. It's yeah. a consumable. That's so right. like air is wind. Air is, is a natural resource. Okay, you, okay. You can harness it. You can just look at it and enjoy it aesthetically. In either way, you're using it, right? Uh, you can completely leave it alone, and it's still part of your environment. The the life. Uh, surrounding you, your environment is full of natural, naturally occurring resources. The one, the other big distinction is: are they renewable or not? Right. So if they are renewable, they are the kind of thing like a forest, or a lawn, uh, or uh, a beehive, or whatever. If you manage it, it keeps reproducing itself. If you don't undermine its ability to do that, and then there are non-renewables like rock, minerals, oil, that uh, once you use them, they're gone. And you don't replace, you can't replace those. The earth has provided those and they're uh, finite. So renewable and non-renewable, and of course, society again has evolved toward trying to become more of a user of renewable and less of a user of non-renewable. So... And even um, like when I think of renewable or reusable, even like, you know, I think plastic, mm -hmm. you know, when they're finding microplastics everywhere, mm -hmm. it's a, and it, it boggles the mind. Mm -hmm. um, but that is, even that is not, uh, you, you can recycle it, but it's not renewable. Yeah. So you have a finite amount and that is a, that's a, a that's oil, right? Comes plastic. That's comes correct. All products. those plastics, everything from sandwich bags to drinking cups to, well, everything, asphalt, everything under the sun, it seems is. So you, you would have to say that those are non-renewable resources being used to create products that then you have another whole conversation. What do you do with the refuse, the remains, what you are done using? Uh, once you're done using it. Uh, and that's where the whole recycling, reuse kind of activity came from is, oops, oops, what are we going to do with all this? We can't just, you know, okay, we did landfills for a while, but now we got other problems. And so that backs us off and makes us think twice about what resources we use, how much we actually use them, and can we reuse those materials? That's what our recycling bins are about. Yeah. 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 And then uh, th then how to recycle that is uh, that's a, that's we will get into that. Yeah. Let's, let's, and, let's, let's, and whether there's a market, <laughs> which is the big one, because yeah. uh, okay. you and I can't put glass in our recycling anymore. Why? Right. Because China got irritated with us and they no longer are willing to take all that glass. They were taking 80 percent of what the United States produced in recyclables, 80 percent. And I think that number is down around 20 now. It's been a rough couple of years for recyclers. Well, then, so then where is the, so if we're using all these natural resources, so where does industry have to come into play 
as far as uh, the management of this and responsibility of natural resources. Well, in, industries have uh, industries are part of society. Sometimes industries lead in moving towards sustainable use of resources and renewability and figuring out new ways to be efficient in the use of resources. Sometimes they're leaders. They have their own research and technology, their own brains, and it's great when they're out in front. Other times, society says, wait a minute, it's the sort of Garrett Hardin tragedy of the commons is out there uh, where we, we just can't trust the human to really do it right. And so government has to come in and put some policy into place that incentivizes people to do things the right way in the interest of the environment. And if you're doing it in the interest of the environment, you're ultimately doing it in the interest of the human who's trying to survive on the planet, right? So, yeah, industry can can be uh, really helpful and, and leaders and industry can be behind the curve and need to be regulated, which is where I spent uh, most of my career is trying to help people figure out their differences on conversations like that. That's, that's how I've migrated. That's my, that's my fun. I love being out in the woods. I love trees. I love uh, working in my surrogate for the forest, my backyard. Mm. Uh, I just love being out as does Diana and as do my kids. But um, my passion early in my career became um, how do people work through their differences uh, in the management of natural resources? That's, basically what I spent my career on. Well, how do they? Yeah. <laughs> it only took a lifetime to get to that. <laughs> well, is... It's changing all, it's yeah. changing all the time, but we have tools, right? And so one of the things you do is you try to help people know what those tools are, tools for managing conflict, right? Which can be as simple as actually listening to somebody rather than just shouting your position at them. I mean, that may seem simple to you, but it's profound in its effect and it's hard for people to do. Uh, more complex kinds of processes for bringing many, many interests together around the table to, uh, and then helping them mediate their differences or helping them work through their differences or even better, helping them walk in the room thinking that the conversation's always got to be about their differences and who's going to win and having them realize that conversation can easily be facilitated to be about how they together see something that they have in common that they want to do. This is what energizes me, that if I can facilitate people to see that common ground and they do have a success together, a couple of things happen that's to the benefit of everyone. Trust gets built between people so they can work together in the long term. I, what's more important than that, Tom? I mean, really, in your life. Yeah, trust you know, and integrity. You know, there's a, a, a quote that I like. Uh, it is, uh, um, I don't trust that person. I, get to, I need to get to know that person. Right. That's a, that's exactly it. I, I like that. I might uh, borrow that. I was going to say steal, but yeah. this is a borrowing. Bar yeah, this is what conversation is all about. So uh, if you can, uh, well, you commonly, it's artful and you have tools as a professional to know how to get people to go from those highly strung, deep value-based attitudinal shouting matches to we want to do this together we clearly have a common interest in this resource let's have some fun together let's do something and then as we do that we'll probably get some ideas about how to work through the stuff we disagree on it's not pollyanna you don't say oh we're not going to talk about what we disagree on like oh we're not going to talk about dams mm. right no you don't you don't say because you're going to talk about dams right just this week the conversation on that is changing. So mm -hmm. you're just helping people with the tools they need. Um, and then there's another piece of it uh, that's 
uh, really energized me in the about half of my career. It's gotten me connected with many philosophers and practitioners, and it's the business of people governing themselves as opposed to relying on top-down federal, state, or local government and regulation. Hmm. And so I've been passionate in my teaching in the last four years, introductory courses in natural resource management, public policy and governance courses, and project management courses, helping students to understand and see, you know, uh, how, you know, how this can work, that people can come together at the local level across their interests. They can work through difficult uh, disagreements that they have, deeply different positions, and they can um, make recommendations to elected officials together, even though the officials know them as deeply divided groups, mm -hmm. make recommendations that they have carved out together through their own work together that um, they agree on. And the, this makes policy making by elected officials easier because the differences are ironed out. And so the policymaker is not sitting in their office with someone coming in this door and yelling, we need this, and someone coming in this door and selling, yelling, we need this, and leaving the policymaker to reconcile that. It's they work out their difference in the town hall. They come to the policymaker. They say, look, we've resolved this. This is what we need. Do this. Policymaker looks around. They go, what's the downside of that? I tell my students, that's when policy becomes feasible, when the politician sees that there's more win than loss. And think about how organic that is. That's people together operating in more efficient ways with people that they're sitting in church pews with, going to the cafe with, uh, at the at the movies with or wherever they see them on the main street that you and I talked about a few minutes ago, um, this is where you know the phrase "all politics is local." Mm. It's kind of where it comes from, and um, so I've been totally energized by that, and had many partners that I've worked with over the years to help support people in doing that kind of work. And there's a lot of it, especially when it comes to natural resources. Um, but the one, the one that comes to mind, I don't know if you know much about it, but wolves is a huge one here in the Northwest. And when it comes to forest management, um, I mean, I can't, my mind kind of boggles at just like all of the different aspects and different people involved in managing forests um, where you have people that would not want you to cut down a single tree. Um, but then we see the efforts of that, I think. Part of that is like uh, forest fires is a big issue. Mm -hmm. um, so where, where does forest management uh, come along and kind of uh, reconcile different sides to how forests can be managed for the benefit of everyone? Mm -hmm. So I have a uh, saying that I try to keep in my head. Um, you, you have to strike a balance between protection and use of resources or you will lose what you love. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of important words embedded in that statement, including the last one, which is meant to strike people in a, not only, a, you know, it's just meant to strike people limp in a limbic way, mm. emotional well as an emotional way, as well as a deeply intellectual way. Uh, so, in forest management, as in every other kind of resource management, I think in this day and age, we strive uh, 
to um, utilize resources but protect their ability to continue producing. So we're back to a theme that we talked mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. 10 minutes ago. Um, and that that is sustainability in a nutshell. So I think resource managers, whether they're in agencies or industries or nonprofits, everyone is now thinking of management as something that's good and necessary. It's not like we're just going to lock everything up. Uh, but is that uh, with have something to do with old growth forests? I know there's something no. with sure. I mean, there there's some controversy there. Yeah, not as much now as there was, but it's mm. still out there and it's deeply valued. It's a a spiritual kind of serenity and aesthetic. Uh, it's also considered by some ecologists to be part of the mosaic. We should not get rid of the mosaic that the forest is most healthy when it's a mosaic of very very diverse components. Uh, just like society, right? So um, the old growth issue is still out there, The which ties to the spotted owl, which relies on old growth for uh, reproducing. Mm -hmm. uh, the wolf issue is directly tied to certain kinds of habitat, but also tied to um, livelihood on the land. The wolf and the grizzly bear come across the fence. They take out people's livelihood. People expect the government to step in and apply some kind of standard that helps to protect that endangered animal, but also to protect their livelihood. I think this is the name of the game today. Uh, if you go out on the eastern front of the Rocky Mountains, uh, out of, off the Bob Marshall Wilderness Front on the eastern front uh, in Montana, east of Glacier Park, um, you'll find an area where grizzly bears were protected, fiercely protected by regulations for many, many, many years. It was one of the hotbeds of implementation of the Endangered Species Act to protect the grizzly. The ranchers all along that front, all that land's owned by ranchers. You know, at first they fought the ESA. They thought that's top-down government regulation. Leave us alone. Those animals are killing our cows. Of course, we'll shoot them. But over time, they realized that ESA is really motivated by uh, just helping that species not disappear. It, the idea is to help that species be able to be sustainable, give it enough of what it needs that it can self-sustain. And if the federal agencies help us as ranchers, too, by giving us leeway to protect our animals, right, then we can get just the right combination of protection and use. And if you have those two entities working together, the regulators and the producers, then you achieve some kind of a, a, a wonderful space. You, you get to that. It's not, uh, it's not always stable. It doesn't last forever. It's a managed space. And right now, we actually have a lot of those producers that are complaining that they did their part, but now the government needs to back off on their regulations a little bit, right? And so it's a little give a little get a little. I teach my students, give a little, get a little. It's a big part of resource management. Okay. Just to back up for a second. I can't think of what ESA stands oh, for. Oh, Endangered Species Act. Endangered yeah, Species Act. I think you said that, but I'm like, ESA. Mm -hmm. ESA. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's bald eagle, grizzly bear, wolf. Uh, yeah. And all the bald eagle has come back. I mean, we, I see them around here. Incredible. Very, incredible yeah. success story. Yeah. And that, of course, was mostly about pesticides. So there we were in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, post-World War II, high-technology fertilizer and insecticide business. And probably a lot of that research was motivated by what we needed in the war. Uh, and then we had all that 
ammunition producing facilities, which could be converted to fertilizer facilities. And so we just started intensifying agriculture. And as we intensified it, we used every inch up to the side of every stream. And we put more and more herbicide on to kill the weeds. And we put more and more insecticide to kill the bugs. The whole idea was we were commodifying agriculture. We were making it where you wanted to get every single grain to be worth something. You could predict how much that was worth, and the farmer could know how much money they're going to make next year, and so on. It's just a, it's a great business, but it's a business that if you take it all the way to the edge of the stream of life, metaphorically, it's going to become a problem for other things that are important to people. Wildlife, clean water, especially soil. So, all the federal regulations that we have around the environment, including Endangered Species Act, really emerged from that period of time when we had Love Canal. Oh, yeah. Pesticides in the backyard mm -hmm. uh, showing up in people's health and births of their children. Uh, the Cuyahoga River on fire. Literally. And, and you can go on. There's a dozen of these cases. Well, they all mm -hmm. came to bear in the 60s, and we had a Republican president who passed in his time, passed more environmental legislation than anyone in history. Almost all the bills were passed unanimously. Uh, that was the Nixon era. Mm -hmm. Culture, society said, enough. We're not loving this enough. We're using it too much. Let's back off. The producers didn't respond to that, so the regulations were put in place. So this is kind of how we got to where we are now. Uh, some people would like to back off a lot of those regulations, minimize that say, hey, people are better at being responsible about this now. And so it's a difficult time. People who are in the environmental movement are finding it difficult to trust that producers will actually do the right thing. And so we're, we're in a little bit of a chess match there between environment and production right now. And a lot of that is, uh, so this is where government regulation comes in and has to ease or not ease. And so how is it now? How do you see government regulation now under the Trump administration? Was it Sonny Perdue? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, boy, interesting times to be watching the federal government because the change proposed by this administration was so strident. It was so clearly stated. It was so obvious in these words, for every regulation produced in our administration, we will eliminate three existing regulations. So that put it in black and white. And many people in the environmental movement went, well, that's arbitrary. That's not an intelligent discussion about a piece of legislation saying, is it doing what it was supposed to do? And if not, let's reform it, maybe modify some regulations. It's, oh, no, we just have too much regulation. Let's get rid of those three. That became kind of a wholesale blanket, like a snowplow. Like I got all kinds of visions, like a tsunami across regulation. Well, I think um, it's set us back as a country. It has set us back at least a few years because it has caused every single discussion to be overly politicized. And so now, where, where you and I might be involved in a collaborative and we're working on how to manage forests in the Clearwater Basin, and we've been doing really good working together, even though we're from different sectors, we now, every time we hear something from the administration, we go, oh, that's red, I have to be for that. Or you hear somebody, something from somebody else, you go, oh, that's blue, I have to be for that. And people are going in their corners again. I think the administration's done uh, 
you know, for whatever their motivation is, they've done a disservice to the process that people had set up to work across their differences. They've divided people, uh, or at least created in people's minds a fear that if they let their guard down, they're going to lose all the ground that they had gained. And, and so I think we're in a difficult time. We're in a difficult time. I don't believe in arbitrary reduction of regulations. I think that's ridiculous. They were passed for a reason. It's really hard to get laws passed. If they got passed, there was a reason, right? So let's just do reform. Let's look intelligently. Is this doing what we designed? If it's not, let's do some reform. And then how, you know, I wonder that maybe this is not a question for you, or maybe you do know, mm-hmm. um, how, how can they just, they being the government or the Trump administration, just say, okay, that's no longer on the books? <laughs> yeah. So they don't actually take a law off the books. Um, they, uh, a lot of the um, power of legislation is the rules that are written for its implementation. So while Congress makes the law and appropriates the money for it to be implemented, they empower one or more federal agencies, which are part of the executive government, that's the president's part of the government, to implement those laws. Congress basically delivers a philosophy and some guidance. The rules about how to implement that are written by uh, career um, employees of the executive branch, agriculture, interior, energy, health and human services. So. Those rules are malleable. Not only that, the White House has been exercising for five or six administrations now executive power, right? Sort of challenging Congress's power by doing executive orders. So we're in an era now where the president will simply say to his to his heads of his uh, agencies, change those rules, get rid of those rules. And they just go back and they go, oh, well, we wrote those rules. We'll just get rid of those rules, right? So that's what's happening. And that creates constitutional questions. You hear a lot of those right now, don't you? Mm-hmm. Right. What's happening to our democracy? Uh, is the Constitution being adhered to? Well, I mean, that now we're into, you'll have to get a law professor in here to yeah. talk about that one. But that's where that conversation comes from. Yeah. Because people fear, uh, they fear the Constitution is not being uh, adequately adhered to. Yeah. That's how you make those changes without getting rid of a law. And so where is your focus now on this uh, conversation of, you know, trying, like we've talked quite a bit about getting people together. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you, who are, who are you looking at now that conversations are happening where you see growth um, in, in, the, in environmental mm-hmm. impacts? Mm-hmm. So some specific examples, the one that I worked on with Senator Crapo for about 10 years was the Owyhee Initiative. And that's a basically uh um, piece of work down in the southwest corner of the state. Uh, I won't go into it in detail. Oh, Idaho. Yeah, southwest mm-hmm. corner of Idaho. That's correct. And uh, it's about wilderness, uh, five generations of ranching on the land, how to use fire, recreation through uh, incredible uh, canyons, and how those uses were all colliding and how a group of people came together under facilitation and worked out uh, ways to go forward together, uh, give, everyone giving a little, everyone getting a little. So that was a, that's a great project. It's still underway. I was lucky to be involved in that when I was CNR dean. also got to know Senator Crapo, who deeply, deeply philosophically believes in this approach to resource management. 
If you go read um, the Lewiston and Daily newspapers today, you'll see quotes from Senator Crapo responding to Senator uh, or excuse me, Representative Simpson's comments about dams and salmon on the snake. And Senator Crapo says, the thing I like about what he said is he's talking about all the interests getting together and working together on solutions. So he's bringing that fundamental belief. Um, another one is the Clearwater Basin Collaborative. It's right here to our south. It's basically the basin running up the Clearwater River from Lewiston. And it's the tribe, forest industry, county government, uh, city government, a uh, variety of environmental groups, all working together on two or three big questions about how to harvest timber, how to implement managed fire, uh, and how to manage salmon in, in this area. Well, those are huge. Huge, all huge issues. And if you left all of those just to the politicians, it would just be constant gridlock because they wouldn't, you know, they'd just be on the firing line. Uh, so instead, the, those people came together. That it, It's incredible what they have co- accomplished. For example, the environmental community probably would not have allowed or was not allowing hardly any harvest of trees in any of the forests up the Clearwater drainage up to the Montana-Idaho border. It basically shut it down. The Forest Service couldn't get any trees out of the woods. Hmm. And uh, as a process of it, uh, a result of these conversations, forest industry and the Forest Service are now have increased their harvest by magnitudes. I don't, I don't have the numbers. But this is because these groups came together and said, okay, it's not just about yes or no, we harvest trees. It's a, where does it make sense to do this? Where can we get prime recreation? Where can we get harvest and get change the fire vulnerability of stands? Where can we protect wildlife? Let's figure this out together. We all we all have intelligence. So the Clearwater Basin Collaborative is another one of these. It's operating every single day. Uh, they're having some challenges. The tribe has uh, pulled out for a while because they disagree on some decisions the group's made about salmon recovery. Uh, but this is how these groups work. They, they have to pay attention to who drops out and why, uh, and they have to do their best to bring those 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 parties back in. There's another one of these collaboratives called the Kootenai Valley uh, Environmental Initiative up in the northern part of the state. Operates very much the same way. The tribes up there are really integral to that. In fact, they are the drivers of that collaborative process and they bring all the players together. As they begin to rediscover their tribal rights through decisions in the courts, uh, they're changing the their footprint on the ground. They're changing their influence over the broader uh, society's use of natural resources. So that leads me to the last example I would use. Um, For um, about 10 years, I've been working with tribes throughout the Northwest and now throughout the country. In my role as U of I's Climate Science Center Director, uh, I started working with people to establish a climate boot camp. And then from that, the tribes in the area came to us and said, will you start a tribal climate camp? for teams from the tribes. And so now what we're doing is bringing tribal teams together to help uh, to help them figure out how to work through the process of uh, climate understanding and climate adaptation back in their home tribes. So th- this has become uh, my latest passion and we're doing our third national tribal climate camp in June uh, in Montana. So that's processing by different groups within tribes who don't all understand climate or some agree that it's there, some of them don't, disagree over what's causing it. Bringing that power together uh, through collaborative processes uh, in tribal communities. 
Cool. Yeah. You know, there's uh, you're talking about we we talk about uh, water and forests and fish, and one of the things that is kind of going on around the Northwest is uh, trees near water sources to help protect salmon. So there's something about keeping the water cooler. <laughs> so this sounds like a, a almost like if you want to talk about a, a perfect storm of everything coming together is uh, um, water rights, uh, managing forests, fisheries, and climate change <laughs> all coming together there. Can you what can, what can you tell me about that? You get you hear about the big ones all the time, and from where you sit in the big red chair. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah this what, chair is red too. <laughs> I see. Yeah. Mine's brown. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so th there's a lot of ways to respond to what you just said. Let me just try a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I'm teaching one of the courses I'm teaching now in my last semester is uh, environmental project management, and we're teaching students how to manage restoration projects on rivers. So that's the environment that you were describing. So what I can tell you is that there's a lot of money, mostly coming from the Bonneville Power Administration and Salmon Recovery, that's going into rebuilding the natural original habitat along the rivers and streams on the Palouse. So the Potlatch River, the Palouse River are real live examples of what you were talking about. If there are trees, native trees, native grasses, native shrubs, and the river is allowed to meander and move slowly and have wetlands associated with it, we're returning to an earlier condition that was there before agriculture straightened it and channelized it. And we're slowing the water down. It's staying on the land longer. Okay, that's good for native plant growth. That's good for wildlife and fish. If you have trees growing along the stream, you keep the water cooler. All of our fish rely on cooler water rather than warmer water. What happens to our water level in the summer here? It what does? It drops very rapidly. Yeah. It drops. Mm -hmm. So fish have an issue with volume of water, and the more you can slow the water down, the more you keep the volume of water in the entire waterway that they're trying to swim upstream in. And the more water that's there, and the more covered it is, and the more it's coming from pools that are covered, the cooler it is. So cooler water, volume of water, that's the equation for these fish, spawning fish to be successful. That's what we're trying to do with restorations along the river. Climate is a direct player in all of this. And for us, Tom, right here, we, we have one of the most dramatic visual effects of climate change right here on the Palouse. And that is that our temperatures, we're getting about the same amount of rainfall and the same amount of snow. Okay, uh, in terms of total volume and feet. Yeah, which kind of surprises me. No, I, thought, I thought we'd get less snow and more rain. Well, actually, but... the weather systems coming in on the Pacific Northwest are staying about the same, okay, in, in cur current climate change. Now, they're, yeah. they're changing dramatically in other places in the world, but what's coming across is about the same, and the Cascade Range is the same height as it was before, and so our patterns are about the same. The problem is the water from the snow or I should say the snow is melting faster yeah. because we're getting more rain in the spring season and that rain is on snow. And what do you get with rain on snow? What have we seen here in the last couple of weeks? Flooding. Flooding. So we're getting more rain on snow in a smaller period of the year before the fish really need it. The water's running off, it's eroding the rivers, and then it's disappearing. So... Our water levels are lower and the water temperature is higher.
when the fish really need it. This is a dramatic effect, direct effect of climate change I right see. here where yeah. we live. Yeah, and that's very noticeable. You're it's, right. it's very noticeable. So, you know, if I was putting on an educational program for people about climate, this is the topic I would bring up in this area. The landowners notice it. They're coming to PCEI and the university and saying, can you help us make our streams more sustainable? So we're taking our classes out and we're helping them restore their streams. I mean, I could tell you some great stories of what we're doing this semester. It's very exciting work. And it's easy to see and it's easy to understand. So much of climate conversation is so complicated and you know, graphs and difficult concepts. Well, and, and it seems so big. It, it seems bigger than what you can do something about. So I'm just going to go home and paint my deck because I can do something about that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, just it, it is, it is, it creates a sense of futility. Uh, so you, you have to avoid that. You have to avoid that. But that's some answer to your question about those parts coming together. There's another one too. You know, when fish go up, we have a lot of research in the last 20 years about this. When fish go up the tributaries of uh, the Salmon and Snake River, two-thirds of the Columbia River is coming out of, north, coming out of northern and central Idaho. Yeah. So when those fish go up there and they die, who's dragging those fish out of the streams? Who's eating I'm, them? I'm going to guess it's going to be uh, bears. The and, bears. Oh, right. I was going to say uh, birds as well. Now, oh. the, bears are, uh, the birds are picking up what the bears leave. Okay. They're distributing it. They're spreading it. The amount of nutrient that gets redistributed from the ocean and downstream on these rivers back up to fertilize the forest throughout north and central Idaho is incredible. And it's all been documented now. It's not dreamland. This is real. That's getting redistributed. It's a cycle that's going wow. on all the time. So if we're not bringing those fish back up, we're not reestablishing the nutrient base upstream, and we've got more fires because of climate change. That's the other direct effect of climate change here. Oh, yeah. It's drier later and longer, more fires. Okay? So it, <laughs> there's, there's just a cascade of things, no pun intended. Uh, there's a cascade of things that are happening that people can really clearly see right here where you right outside this room where you and i are sitting right now and uh it, it you know they i've recently spoke to uh melissa block who's an npr mm -hmm. uh got an edward r murrow award yep. here, she was uh, here for from the edward r murrow college of communication pardon me it's a lifetime achievement award from the edward r murrow college of communication at washington state university that's correct <laughs> she's she's you know i got to know her university of texas uh, planetarium. That's how she got her start on NPR. She had that star show once a week on NPR. She did. Yeah, that's how she started. Melissa Block. This is Melissa Block from the University of Texas, whatever it's called, Planetarium. I yeah. I, I, wow. Yeah. I did so much research on her. I didn't even see that. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. That no, that's all right. Um, uh, but she was saying that... Um, uh, I, I can't, I'm trying to remember what, well, somebody had asked her a question. I don't think it was me, but she said, you know, I think that you can say right now, climate change is real. There's, mm -hmm. There should be no doubt that this is happening. It's going on. There shouldn't be a question of it. Mm -hmm. um, as someone who studies a lot with climate and you're trying to put people together that disagree, mm -hmm. how, how do you get people to say, yeah, you know, I guess mm -hmm. it has some... It's true. So, Tom, what would um, what would you pay attention to? Uh, it, it, what would you find to be alarming? Something that affects your livelihood, income, livelihood, right. or something that affects your health, or the health and income of people that you love. Okay, sure. 
So social psychologists have known this for a long time. This is where the mark is missed in the climate conversation. I'll take a page from your book. It's so big, so complicated. Okay, that doesn't help. Nobody's going to embrace math and physics that they don't understand. We barely were willing to do that in eighth grade. We're not going to do it now. Uh, And then if it doesn't strike me that this has an impact, a real impact like the ones you identified, Strike two, place it in a politicized environment. Strike three. So those feed each other. I, I'm, I'm going to mm. stick my neck out here, uh, my recorded voice, and say that the, gr- the big disservice to the climate conversation is completely ironic. It was the guy who brought it up in the first place and put it on the big screen, Al Gore. Take a look at the initial presentation where millions of people were asked to consider this issue. It divided people. It pointed and poked in the eye the causers and stroked the people who were directly affected by it. Bad move. That's not the way you get people to come to the table, Hmm. right? Big mistake made. It was grandiose the descriptions of the issues were huge and global and everything from sun flares to tsunamis you know i don't remember the details but that that's not gonna stick to you right it's not gonna stick that's the stuff of movies that's not gonna stick so well uh then uh gore at that time was passionate about this and may have been ahead of his time in terms of reading the science and reading the tea leaves Uh, He did not sit down with communications professionals and say, how might we get people to embrace this very difficult, complicated, distant topic? So now add the third factor, and that's the politicization, if however you say that word. Sure. Yeah. So what a little while ago I was talking about, that's what's made collaborations hard. That's what's made reform of legislation hard, is that Mm -hmm. now you just decide, well, when somebody says something, I have to decide whether that's a red statement or a blue statement or something like that. Yeah. And then I go my way, my direction. So we're stuck now with the dilemma uh, that it's not close enough to the individual on the ground in most cases, um, is not seen as directly affecting them, is too complicated to understand and to affect, and it's politicized. So at the very top of this country, we just basically said, we don't believe in this. We're walking away from our agreements. And they systematically went through the departments of the federal government and said, we're taking the word climate off the web pages. We're going to stop giving money to proposals that are about this. I mean, I studied this for a year, the first year of the administration, and I had a seminar with my students. We had people from Washington testifying in our seminar class. They were systematically excising this from the system. Well, you know, that's that's wrong. That's inappropriate. And it's over-politicizing. It's, uh, it's adding, it, it's um, taking away the value of science. In fact, most of the rhetoric undermined science and tried to belittle science. So we have a tough nut right now. We have a tough nut. We have to relax. We have to back off. We have to unfortunately have more and more people see the direct effects on their front porch and in their families. Uh, and we have to, we just have to take the politics out of this issue and make it as local and understandable as possible and give people a chance to do something about it. You have to give people a chance to do something they can feel good about. It's not a really 
difficult equation to put together, but under the conditions that we're operating in our society and culture, it's, there's some pretty high hurdles right now. You know, um, something that uh, I don't know if I read it or, you know, it, anymore, you get so much information coming at you from all kinds of different sources. But I remember somebody saying, oh, there's nothing wrong with my greenhouse. What kind of gases are in my greenhouse? Oh. <laughs> so greenhouse wow. gases, right? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, boy. <laughs> I haven't even heard that one, but that yeah. just adds to my pile. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's nothing wrong with my greenhouse. There's no gases in my greenhouse. So, you it's know. It's just not been made friendly and understandable, has it? Yeah. Well, you know, and another thing that uh, I had uh, read is that um, I think it was a story from NPR about the, the migrants, the massive amounts of migrants coming up from the South mm -hmm. trying to get to the United States is because of climate change. Mm -hmm. Uh, because the farms aren't doing as well as they used to. Yeah. Uh, not only that, but political issues, but still the farmers are not, they can't grow what they used mm -hmm. to grow. The farm, the land isn't doing what it used to. Time to move north. It's right. a direct effect. So that conversation, Tom, could go a couple of ways, at least a couple of ways, <clears throat> out in the public forum, on NPR, on CNN, on Fox. It could be, wow, we have an interesting situation in many places in the world. We're seeing direct effects of environmental change. The water's coming at a different time or whatever. It's affecting how crops are grown and the livelihood of people who are growing those crops. And we are directly affected to that because our markets intertwine, those people as growers and us as consumers. That's an interesting topic. There's like at least four hooks there where the average person making their toast in the morning might go, hmm, I like I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. So that's about people to people trading goods on the land where they know and see what the conditions are and us being interested in that story. It's close enough to our backyard. Yeah. I mean, well, this is a wheat territory. So well, I mean, yeah, you're, I mean, talking, about, you, you're you, talking about making your toast. Well, you could literally, literally, I mean, you know, so that conversation can be about with a farmer in Washington or it can be with farmers in Central America, which is where I was going because you mm -hmm. were citing that. Well, OK, so out of that conversation might come a side conversation about, wow, what does that say about immigrants? Where are they going to where are people going to be looking to go? Oh, wow, that's interesting. That's very different than we have a bunch of robbing, mother raping people knocking at the door and climbing over the fence. Is it? Is that are those different ways to start a conversation about our relationship with people and another? Yeah, pretty different ways to start the conversation. So um, I think that we, the way it was started, and unfortunately, I would say the way the media reported it was <clears throat> these are horrific. You know, who do we bring to the State of the Union address? A bunch of people who got their kids got shot or killed by a drug dealer or something. And that's our basis for the immigration conversation. Well, like what proportion of the total immigration story is that? Uh, what can people do about that? And is that highly politicized? Oh my goodness. Yes. That's either you're on board with that story or you're not on board with that story. Really different than creating an interesting situation for people to consider how they fit into that has a reason for why people migrate and an effect on our markets and how we get our goods. Two to totally different things, but they're gonna end up, they should end up in the same place. They don't. They should end up where is climate affecting people on a day-to-day -day basis. That's not where they end up. One ends up, you're either red or you're blue and immigration is my issue. This other one 
hasn't been made interesting enough for people to really grab onto it, the other conversations. So we're missing our opportunity for people to have an alternative conversation about immigration. My opinion. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's overwhelming anymore. This, uh, um, just, I mean, how climate and the changing, uh, the changing climate as we see it, um, and how it affects everything. Um, something I really wanted to talk about, and that's forest fires. How can we positively affect or reduce the effects of forest fires with forest management? So reduce the negative effects of forest fires with forest management is your question. Yeah. Is yeah. It, or, or do we even want to? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's been discussion of like, just let fires go. I mean, yeah. where, where is the, where does forest management come into this? So I, I have, you know, our College of Forest, our College of Natural Resources here at the University of Idaho is arguably the number one best place to get an education and do research on these topics in the country and maybe on the continent. Really? The top few in the world. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 40 year old program. My colleague, Penny Morgan, uh, who I'm retiring with this next month, uh, has been building that program for 30 years. It's an amazing program. So I'm sitting in a hotbed of that kind of research that's going on here. And it. Uh, I'll speak generally to your question. I don't want to um, get too specific because I don't want to misspeak on some of the realities okay. of fire science. Uh, but we know a lot. It's not your it. specialty. It's but... not my specialty, but it's hard to not be able to speak about it at least at a certain level because mm -hmm. we're so surrounded by it. We're in the hotbed again. No pun intended. Um, yeah. So what we do know is that our current challenge with the forest and fire and people is that we adopted 100 years ago a set of policies at the federal level uh, as a result of the catastrophic losses due to the fires in northern Idaho and other places in the West. That's what we know. We reacted to those fires with technology and communication at that time by establishing an ad campaign called Smokey Bear by deciding every fire we ever see will be put out by 10 o'clock in the morning, by publicizing fire as a demon, a horrific thing. Hollywood had movies like Bambi running away from the fire, and we did everything we could to demonize fire and to stop it, to keep it from happening. If you look at a healthy forest anywhere in the world, there's probably a regular interval of naturally occurring fire. Every forest. How often, the length of time in that interval, and the severity and intensity of those fires, highly variable given the local conditions and broader conditions. Scientists have documented this down by looking at tree rings over thousands of years on individual trees and across landscapes. Our our scientists are really pros at this right here. Shout out to all scientists. Shout out to all scientists, <laughs> yeah. especially U of I's fire people. Yeah. Uh, so we, we've got this well documented. You can go to any site here on the Palouse or many places in the world and say, fire occurs here naturally every 40 years, every five years, every year at this season. And then you can go to the cultural and anthropological piece of that. And you can say, here's what we know historically those were set by indigenous people, or those were lightning caused, or the indigenous saw the lightning. They saw that after the fire, a lot of green grass grew and more trees sprouted, so they started lighting fires. So you begin to add that layer of cultural anthropological history.
Okay, and then um, then there's a lot of interaction effects like climate change, which is coming in and it's changing the landscape. It's changing the humidity in certain areas. It's changing when the water is present, how long in the year water is present. It's changing um, ignition factors. Climate is affecting all of those things. So, and there are many other factors, but that's enough for you to begin to understand. When we took the fire out of all of those systems, we allowed more and more and more vegetation to grow in those systems, to break down and fall in those systems, to be on the ground in those systems. And those forests, if they've not been actively managed to remove senescence and allow younger things to come up, I don't know what senescence is. Old dying trees, okay. which are usually taken out by fire, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. So if we allowed all of that to build up in that forest, what are we creating? What would you call that stuff? Does fire run on oxygen, heat, and fuel, right? I mean, so we're giving it the fuel. Add climate effects to that. So now you got an old damaged forest. Bark beetles are coming in and killing the old trees. They're all standing there dead. You got a lot of fuel on the ground and you got ignition factors are changing. Uh, hasn't been any fire, should have been 10 fires. Boom, when you have a fire, it's a conflagration. That's what's around you. That's what you see, that's what you read, that's what you're reporting on. California fires just knocked everyone's socks off this year, oh, right? They, they were a perfect storm. Incredible. Perfect storm. No, again, no pun intended. That yeah. actually Paradise, was, California. Paradise, California. And yeah. So that's what's, you know, in my uh, professional uh, but not professional fire scientist <laughs> kind of way, that's my summary of what you're dealing with, uh, what your forest conditions are and why they are what they are. Now we're trying to use fire as a tool. Trying to get people to understand that fire is not a demon, that fire is a tool. It's a naturally occurring thing. Yeah. And while it may scare you to think that we might go out and light a fire to mimic nature on a piece of land that's within a mile of where you have your work shed, while that might scare you and probably is understandable that it would scare you, it's important for the agencies who are trying to do that kind of management now with fire and you and your municipal leaders to say, how can we make this happen? We have to figure out how to protect life and property, but we also are going to have more loss of life and property if we don't apply fire as a tool. So mimicking nature by applying forests as a tool is called prescribed burning. Basically. Yeah, you hear that periodically. Yeah. We're pros at that now. We're very good at it. Our faculty and students are doing it out on Moscow Mountain all the time. It's going on everywhere. But people are reticent about lighting fires <laughs> in the forest uh, until I mean, they understand. Kind of understandably. I mean, understandably. I, can, I, can, I can understand that, the, you know, the, the not wanting to, to do that because forest fire, lighting a fire on purpose in the forests, mm -hmm. you know, and then we get to, you know, really extremely bad air quality here mm -hmm. every summer. Mm -hmm. I mean, last year, I don't think it was too bad. But still, I mean, there's definitely days where it, it, you it's hard to see a mile down the road. Yeah, you know, Tom, health, human health is probably the fastest growing area of concern when you're talking about climate and fire. Mm. In my policy course this year, we actually dedicated an entire couple of World Cafe sessions just to bring in a lot of professionals to sit with the students and hear stories about how climate is advancing fire and how fire is advancing smoke 
and what are the implications? So yeah, we, we have had more and more involvement of health departments at the state and federal level and local level. They come and get involved in our conversations now because smoke is increasing their client load, aggravating lots of asthma and other lung and heart kinds of issues. So it's definitely coming. It's on the rise. Uh, human health has become a driver for attention to climate and fire. Yeah. And what, what do you see is like, uh, what's uh, the, the way forward? Is it to, to do prescribed fires mm -hmm. or um, going and how to take out some of this uh, detritus that's on the fourth floor? Or Yeah, it is detritus. Good, good from your ecology class. <laughs> I remember that word. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Yes, I... I really do honestly believe that worldwide, and, and uh, I right now have a fire PhD student from Portugal living uh, at our home, and she's a student of a colleague who's in Portugal who works with our fire faculty, and I've gone over and visited and worked with them as have many of my colleagues. And so that's just an example of how worldwide scientists and practitioners are advancing the conversation with the public that fire is a tool, fire is a tool. Without using it, the consequences, our losses are gonna be greater. We have a pent up problem. It's not a local, just oh, just like, oh, it's just now problem. This is a problem that's been a long time coming. It's just stacked up energy waiting to be released, okay? So if, um, I would have to say that the motion forward now is toward the public understanding that they have a natural relationship with fire, reducing their tendency to create risk to themselves by planting themselves inappropriately in a fire-prone forest. We have a lot of that going on, people building big, beautiful houses in fire forests that normally burn every year yeah. on the ground. Uh, yeah. So getting people to pay attention to that, getting insurance companies to put variable rates on people who put their uh, life and others at risk by building in high-risk areas, uh, helping fire fighting agencies at all levels work together efficiently uh, to help figure out how to get people out of mountainous areas, all of these things going on, and at the same time, teaching more and more professionals how to do fire safely. The last piece of it is almost full circle back to one of our earlier conversations about collaborations. So let's go back to the Clearwater Collaborative, the Clearwater Basin Collaborative. Remember I said forest industry and environmentalists came forward and they made agreements to harvest many, many, many more acres of trees than has, has been seen for 40 years. What was that agreement based on primarily? What is that common ground on which those otherwise heavily divided parties came together? It's fire. It's the danger of losing those forests completely, losing all of the values, recreational, timber, wildlife, all of it going up in smoke. Because the fires that are gonna happen in a lot of that Clearwater Basin, those are fires that should have happened 40, 50, 70 years ago, they should have been smaller and they should have been semi-regular. Now when we have it, it's going to be the big one. It's going to be a huge loss and the rivers are going to pay the price and so on. So all those people with all those interests in that forest resources said, what's our common enemy? What's our common issue? It's fire. So let's overcome our politics. Let's overcome our tendency to just say, well, if you're with forest industry, all you want to do is cut down trees and you're a Republican. Hmm. Let's overcome that. That's not true. 
forest industry is professionals. They know how to grow trees. They know how to do it really well. But yeah, and they'll live within federal regulations. So let's just not let them get carried away and cut everything down. But of course, it can be done in many ways to try to reduce fire. So the environmentalists go, yeah, okay, but let's make sure we need a trusting relationship here. Let's make sure that's a mosaic. You're not just getting your free will. But we do agree that this fire thing needs to be addressed. Let's do this together. Harvesting is one of the ways to do it. Prescribed burning is one of the ways to do it. Prescribed burning works really well if you do it in in conjunction with some other forest management. So you see how that relates back to the collaboratives. So the fire, which is the common fear, also can be the common tool for, for moving forward. It's kind of ironic, really, when you think think about it. That's yeah. kind of cool. Huh. And, you know, I'm thinking that, that don't fires produce also a lot of CO2? Mm, yeah, yeah. Now, if so, here's the... Here's the question. If we cut back on forests or we have fewer trees, how can the planet reabsorb the CO2? <laughs> I knew you were, were eventually going to get there. You, you know enough about everything to eventually touch all the bases. So, uh, so we're now in the base on the field where I'm the least versed. I'm not, oh, okay. a, I'm okay. not an economist and really to deal with the carbon stuff completely, you have to really have a good sense of economics because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get government to come in and and uh, put some energy into the markets for carbon trading so that people can do the right thing because the markets aren't doing it themselves right now. Okay, that's the end game. But going back to the beginning of the game, yeah, carbon, CO2 in the atmosphere, greenhouse gases. Trees are huge sinks. They are basically big piles of carbon. When and you, the ocean as well. Yeah. And the, the oh, we're talking trees. Ocean, ocean's a huge one. Ocean's another whole issue altogether. Right, with, boy, right. oh boy, oh boy, do we have problems there. And boy, are those going to cascade. But anyway, uh, that that's for a different person to answer. But anyway, the, <laughs> the, uh, let's, let's talk carbon on the ground. Right, and okay. trees, okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, trees, carbon on the ground, carbon in the soil, good thing. If you cut them down and burn them, you're releasing it, you're getting CO2 in the atmosphere. Not a good thing in the total equation. So what we're trying to do is get people to do carbon footprint analyses, for example. If they are using things and it's releasing carbon, then also go out in your life and do things that put carbon back in the system. Plant trees. You'll see a lot of tree planting programs where somebody can say, I feel good this evening because I went out with my kids and we planted 150 trees and that's this much carbon being sequestered. It's in the soil, it's in the trees, right? That's great because that offsets what I did when I flew to Washington, D.C. yesterday yeah. on, on a big airliner. So the, that's what we want. We want people to think about that. We want them to know these things are related. Okay, so there's no bottom line that says we have to stop taking trees off the ground. No more fire, you know, no more airplane flights. I, I don't think anybody's there. It's more, hey, I know how carbon can be put in the system, and I know how my lifestyle is putting carbon in the air. So let me strike a balance. That, I think that's where we're going. That's kind of a friendly conversation. Uh, and so what is the consequence of having had all of these forests uh, where fires held at bay? Well, we've stored a lot of carbon. That's a good thing. I have a colleague, Tara Hudeberg, in the faculty in, in our College of Natural Resources who can talk to you for hours <clears throat> Excuse me, about the best way to keep carbon in the soil and the best way to build markets so that people are incentivized to do that. But that's coming. We're going to hear more about it. We need to make it friendly for people. 
and and we need to incentivize uh, markets that will get industries to do things that put carbon in the ground, keep carbon on the ground, and C two out of the air, CO two out of the air. Yeah. So um, it, you you talk a lot, I think, about uh, you 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 see like uh, people, the environment, and industry. Mm -hmm. Where where is the sweet spot for all those three? Is it, is it because, I mean, you work for natural resources and society. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be some connection between all of this. Mm -hmm. If you don't strike a balance between protection and use, you will lose what you love. Mm, yeah. I think the statement works for everyone. Yeah, I think it's just fine that you say you're hearing me talk about industry. You're hearing me, hearing me talk about, you know, the component parts, <clears throat> the environment, industry, whatever. We have a tendency to create a false dichotomy, at least I like to say to my students, think about it. You're either an environmentalist or you're an industrialist. I say baloney. That's just not true. Don't allow yourself to be, don't, when you're told that, don't listen to that. You need to make a decision about every issue based on your best analysis, information, and data that you can get. So. In some cases, you'll say, hey, wait a second, I think the industry is doing their part just fine. Leave them alone. In other cases, you say, mm -mm 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 -mm. strategy of the commons is going on right here. We need the government to intercede. We need to stop that. That's the only way that's going to stop. And the road of life, you'll encounter many, many issues. Each one needs to be looked at you know, with regard to the data and information that you can collect to help express your opinion about what's going on and what needs to be done. So it's not, oh, I'm pro-industry or I'm pro-environment. We got, we got into that in the 60s when things were really bad. That's too bad. It's way past time for us to get beyond it. The false dichotomy is killing us. And here we are. The over-politicization of environmental issues is taking us backwards. So I'm looking forward to relaxing a bit, getting out of the way of that political train yeah. and getting back onto a productive road where I sit in the room with these collaboratives and they check their guns at the door. And I say guns metaphorically, <laughs> figuratively. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I'm coming in here because I know these people are good people and they all love something about the resource base. I love something about the resource base. Together, we'll find the right balance of use and protection. And I think it is balanced. That's the human condition. We need resources. And the more of us there are on the planet, the more damage we're going to be able to do. The more technology we have, the easier it is for us to process them and use them. So let's look for technologies that minimize damage and also use technologies to help fix problems when we make them. So technology doesn't solve everything, but it's part of the mix. It's part of the mix. So that's what I would add. I would add technology to the conversation always. I would always have technology. There are people that say technology is the evil. It causes all the problems. But oh, technology man. fixes a lot of stuff, right? Well, I mean, I, I just think of like just, okay, let's look at drones, for yeah. example. I mean, oh. it's tremendous what, uh, um, like drones, like uh, uh, my wife, Elise, who you work with, mm -hmm. she was telling me that somebody is doing research on trying to determine how much moisture is in trees after it snows mm -hmm. by using a drone to do, that can scan the whole area, mm -hmm. but where before it was like one person going to one tree and it would take a measuring. day. Right. 
and cutting then, off a limb and measuring it with a pressure bump. Well, yeah. you still want to do the drone pictures with the technology and then some what they call ground truthing, where you go out and you sample in several places just to make sure that what you think the drone is registered there is what you actually measure there. That's really common. But drones are incredible. The pictures that you stitch together of thousands of images mm. of a riverbed are, are enough to make you just stand back with your eyes and mouth open and wonder what a view of reality. They are incredible. Drones have just revolutionized natural resource management. Now, um, remote sensing from satellites had the same effect on us 50 years ago. We were just using pictures from airplanes with stereoscopes. And all of a sudden we had Landsat taking pictures with better resolution from 10 miles up. Yeah. Uh, uh, just incredible landscapes. Now we got drones. The technology that's connected to that drone is called LIDAR. LIDAR is a scanning technology that allows you to read moisture levels, depths, reflectance, everything under the sun. And how they uh, see how fast you're going on the highway. <laughs> that too they are they are uh, snaring a few people aren't they with those drones yeah yeah and uh you know we're drones are kind of funny we've got a, you got to have a license to fly a drone thank goodness because they're starting to run into each other and uh they are causing some challenges here and there but anyway they're great natural resource management yeah just so i mean just that that bit of technology when Excellent. it has advanced yeah just it's pretty amazing but look at a piece of logging technology for example somebody mm -hmm. might say <clears throat> that logging technology allowed us to get 10 times as many trees out of the forest in a period of time than we were able to do before. Also, that person might conclude, that's a bad technology. We're now going to remove more trees than we should. Well, not necessarily. It's how you utilize that technology. And are you protecting the resource while you're ramping up your removal of trees? So I think with each technology, you have to understand what it might spin off positively and what you have to manage that's maybe a negative. So... Like everything else in life, the yin and the yang, the plus and the minus. Yeah, <laughs> right. Mm. And uh, so, with like you're talking about the, uh, taking out trees, how um, are there? How many more trees need? Do you know how many more trees need to be planted each year just to keep up with consumption? Mm. Is that too big a question, or mm. not? Not your field. No, it's a good idea um, to keep talking about the planting of trees because. The issue is we are removing land that supports trees right. and we are removing trees from land that will no longer be able to support trees because in the tropics, the soil characteristics are the important factor. So you have trees that have been growing in a three canopy uh, tropical or subtropical forest anywhere around the world, around the middle between the tropics. And you take those trees off, uh, depending upon the season and how many of the understory plants you remain there, you could have all of that soil wash off. That soil is very light. It's very thin. There's very little organic matter. Just washes away. Well, you've changed that stands avail. That site's avail. Uh, excuse me. That site's um, ability to produce trees again. You've taken that oh, land. Wow off of the rolls 
the inventory of potential. So you're talking about like a deforestation where just going it, in and wiping out hectares of land. Yeah, and then it's it's deforestation, and then it's no more trees ever because the soil's gone. Oh, wow. So you go across I didn't the tropics. Know that was a part of the. Oh yeah, yeah, as yeah, well. yeah. These are wow. like oxisols and other types of soils uh, that just erode very, very quickly, and it rains a lot in the tropics. So. This is a matter of ignorance. I say that with all due respect. People are trying to get a livelihood, living on the edge uh, all throughout the tropics. And so they're cutting down trees in order to have more pasture because they can make more money by raising cattle and selling meat. But they're doing it in places where the effect of the cattle and the loss of soil means they'll never have a forest again. So the total... Back to your point about do we need to plant trees. Yeah, we absolutely need to plant trees. The... Idaho forest industry is is hellbent. They are doing a great job of planting. It's a high priority for them because I love this. It's survival and sustainability for the industry. If they don't have another seven generations of trees coming up, what are they going to be? Right? So that one works really well. They are leaders in tree planting because it's to their advantage and it's also a great thing in terms of public relations. Um, should you and I take advantage of tree planting programs? Yes, we we're way behind the curve on the total acreage of, of trees on the planet um, for the right CO2 balance. Yeah, plant trees. <laughs> plant trees. PCI or where, wherever you're going, plant trees. Yeah, and uh, you know, and if you live in a town or a city like we do, there are regulations on what type of trees you can or cannot plant. Of course, way. urban forestry. Yeah. It's a different yeah. topic. And we are a tree city, USA. We are. I like that. Yeah. And what's that in Boise, Idaho? Is that in Boise, Le Bois? Le Bois, the city of trees. The city of trees. Mm -hmm. It's certain it is. Yes. Yeah, so. I, I, I don't know what the original pictures of Boise look like and how many trees were actually there, but I suspect that came from trees that were growing along the river. Yeah. Beautiful riparian areas and trees that settlers brought on the wagon trains, Oregon Trail and other uh, trails. They brought trees and planted them, go across all across the Palouse, and you can find lots of farmsteads where the trees were planted in the 30s and 40s. Hmm. Uh, and those trees are all falling over and dying now. Uh, if you're driving around this area, you'll see the cottonwoods and the willows are all laying down next to the rivers and creeks. And we've just not done a very good job of uh, helping to recreate the next generation of trees on the prairie. I'm okay if the cottonwoods go away. <laughs> <laughs> Don't need those. Huh? Well, you know, every spring. They're great for wildlife. They, yeah, I, I, they're nice to look at, yeah. but man, they're, when they get rid of their, their <laughs> cottony, whatever it is. Covering your yard. Yeah, and not only that, that's a, it's a fire hazard too, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I digress. I digress. <laughs> Okay. You know, what I'm noticing else that you talk about, too, is you talk a lot about win-wins. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a that's a very positive, very uh, leadership quality in you. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about your leadership that you've mm -hmm. done. Um, you, you've got your degrees, and then you came here. You came to University of Idaho. Mm -hmm. uh, you became dean. Mm -hmm. um, I can't even imagine, because I, I work at a university as well, mm -hmm. and just like the, the, the pressure mm -hmm. that is on a dean to keep the the college or the uh, deans of college is that where you're a dean of a college yes, within college a university right that that there's so much pressure to make sure that it succeeds in every aspect so the question i have is like a one what does a dean do every day <laughs> is it basically i see them out of many functions is it functions that you go to a lot or is it a lot of meetings so the, I'm, I'm glad you asked about this. This is a big part of my life. I went into administration early. I was, a, I was a center director three times in the University of Minnesota, started centers, 
Uh, that's a CEO kind of role. As uh, a center director? Center director. So it's a center that's set up that draws on resources from across the university oh, okay. as a mission uh, and so on. So had those roles, then I was associate dean in Minnesota and then dean of the College of Natural Resources here, and then the president's position here, uh, and then a couple of other center directors here. All of these kind of CEO roles uh, in the university, um, they're uh, challenging. My colleagues that I get to know who are donors to the university or very successful in private business, I've had many of them, actually, no exaggeration, say to me, I would never take one of those leadership roles in higher education. It's way too amorphous. There's not enough hierarchy. Uh, there's too many pressures coming at you from everybody, inside and outside. How do you survive? So just want to validate uh, via m m what I've heard from donors that in the private sector that it's a complex working environment it is your instincts are valid uh, it's complex and challenging in fact the tenure of these jobs has reduced it when i entered administration in minnesota uh, deans were serving for 20 to 25 years nationwide everywhere all colleges those are average of five to seven years now wow everywhere yeah. And so the reason I like to say is because you make decisions every day. And if you're not making decisions, don't go on that job. You're making decisions every day and you're making uh, enemies and friends, to say it roughly. And guess with who, every decision? With every decision. Mm -hmm. And guess who remembers the most? Not you. <laughs> the enemies or the friends? Yeah. Who yeah. remembers your decisions? Right. The enemies. Mm hmm. So that accumulates. It's like a spreadsheet. I never had a spreadsheet on my computer, but I had one going in my head. And I could tell over time how that accumulation of enemies sticks to me. I could, I could feel it sticking to me. And it was like a, <clears throat> I don't want to overstate it. There's a little bit of albatross. Um, there's definitely gooiness to it under your feet. The, it's reducing your levity. It's reducing your ability to just be a visionary and pursue and take the system forward. It's dragging you out of being a leader and dragging you back into being a manager. These pressures, these distractions. So not to overstate the challenge, but I want to validate that you sense it's a challenging job. It's a very challenging job, all of these, President and Dean in particular. So what do you do all day? Uh, you are more external than I think anyone outside the university is really aware, and more than most people inside the university. People expect you to be the CEO of the university or of your college. All 800 undergraduate students, all 1,000 graduate students, all 200 faculty, all 150 staff, all facilities wherever they are that that's your house that's your castle that's your purview that's what most people think you're managing on a daily basis but in fact as time has rolled along both the dean and president's jobs are mostly external you're dealing with political people you know your policymakers on a first name basis at every level local state and federal uh, you um, work with people like you in other universities or who are your peers who are going through difficult times. That's a very important network you're working with. You're working with donors, friends of the university, potential and established. You're working with people who have very strong opinions, especially about things like athletics, more strident, difficult, challenging situations with athletics than any other topic. 
I think all universities, this is true. And the challenging part of that is those people can make a lot of noise and not be providing an equal amount of support. Just something that athletics can generate. A lot of great things come from athletics, but it can be one of the most deafening and death-defying kinds of activities that a CEO has to deal with. President Staben is a perfect example in what he dealt with with the Big Sky, Return to the Big Sky this year. Very few people that really, really tried to take him down over that really understood the complexity of his, of his decision process and the givens that he had to deal with. Very, very few people. And they're more willing to yell and scream and take him down by working with politicals in the state than they are to go to him and help him work through a solution. That's the way it is in those jobs, right? So really challenging. I don't want to leave that as the like the overall blanket. These are incredibly rewarding jobs. Oh my goodness. I, I loved the Dean's job and even more the president's job. So the question is, if I loved it that much under in that kind of crucible and pressure cooker, why? Why? What was it that was giving me energy? I'm glad I didn't have to ask. No, yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, to that's, that's good. I that, want to know. To me, that's it. In life and profession, if you're doing things that give you energy, you feel energized, no matter how tired you are, you have found the sweet spot. Most of the time, it's like a tap on you that's taking energy out of you. And you have to find a way to recover. So where's the sweet spot come for me? <clears throat> the sweet spot for me is I have a deep and abiding love and affection for the institution, both as dean, because I graduated from there with a master's and a Ph.D., 25 years later and came back, how much better does it get than that? Deep and abiding. So that overcomes a lot of things. Does that sound like a business, a job? It's more than a job. That's a passion, right? As president, my thing is I'm an integrator. I have ideas and I love to be around people with ideas and I like to see the parts together optimize the whole. I don't ever want to see every individual part trying to optimize because you can't sum to the best situation. You have everybody focused on what the university is, UNI-versity is, and then have them function the best way they can to have that university mission get accomplished. Is that always the case? Heck no. As a president, a lot of times you're managing the egos of all those other sub-CEOs and trying to get them to understand this is about the university. What's your part contributing to this great university? So I love that. That energizes me doing that kind of work. And that's what, that's what gets me over the hump. That's what that abiding love and that ability to really be where I want to be. I'm an ecologist, right? I grew up in the Odom era when ecology was emerging as a new science. The reason I went into ecology is because it's all about how the parts work together. It's about the natural house, physical, biological, human parts, all interconnecting and making it work. The ligaments are all healthy. Most of my time in physical therapy has been with my ligaments. <laughs> so I know when the ligaments are bad, the muscles don't work, right? Yeah. So, so the, I mean, I hope, hopefully you're hearing what's given me energy and getting me through what's inevitably really, really challenging job, really challenging job. Um, so I operated 
with a set of principles that I developed while I was in two sabbaticals. One of them was as a Kellogg Foundation fellow in the early 90s, and the other was as a uh, Mondale Humphrey Center Emerging Leader fellow at the University of Minnesota in the mid-90s. Those two programs plucked people out of many sectors as young emerging leaders put us together and helped us work through really difficult societal issues together across sector. Incredible opportunities. Those are wonderful programs. In those processes, I learned a lot about what leadership is. I became, I designed courses on leadership and taught them for several years at Minnesota. I just totally got into what this really is, this leadership thing, the balance between leadership and management. And I developed a set of principles. And I have to say, Tom, that those principles are also part of what's energizing me because I've been reinforced that if I stick with those and let those be there in my quiet moments and in my conversations with others, they are helpful and they're usually really right. They're like guiding lights. So I can share a few of those Please. with you. Please, yeah, sure. Because, you know, I, my thought is that I recently... Um, just to kind of mm. encourage you to this is that um, most people don't, mm -hmm. they don't have uh, a guiding principles or at least mm -hmm. write down what their, what their own ethics are. Mm -hmm. uh, most people just go about life mm -hmm. without actually thinking about what uh, are my values mm -hmm. and writing them down and having a document of what, what do I value period. And, and and it's an on it can be it's an ongoing document it changes your values change <laughs> you you know the the value the the basics kind of stay the same but you know you like everybody else you you grow you evolve yeah yeah or or you're living in some kind of isolated space or something but these um, these are kind of enduring principles and values that are really stuck with me they come from a lot of places they come from growing up in scouting they come from my parents and grandparents they come from experiences where I see people operating without these things they come from going through really difficult mis uh, situations where I made a mistake um, many times uh, so welcome that's, to life that's, yeah. where they, that's where they come from yeah. so the first one is integrity and it's beginning and end nothing comes close it's sort of like in you know I'm a, I'm a member of the Presbyterian Church I'm a Christian and I believe that the teaching there the only one to pay attention to is that you love everyone as yourself period everything else is sub so for me the top level principle is integrity you build it every single minute with every interaction you have with another human being okay my wife and i are going in the peace corps right after we retire oh how cool is that so coming up in months and the reason we're going in the peace corps is is because we both deeply believe that the world's peace is not going to be delivered by giving people technology or basically all of your knowledge or something transferred the world becomes a better place because it's like a network. It's like a map of every two people that chink, chink, get a ligament between them. See the theme of ligament? And if I meet someone in Myanmar or Panama, and I even have an hour-long relationship with them, and we know each other's names, we are going to reduce by magnitudes any chance that we will ever war with each other. Just deeply believe this and know this. I've worked all over the world. So that's there. That's going on. That's integrity. 
Integrity is about one-on-one. It's every day. You don't ever let up. Um, I've been reinforced by some of the people that worked for me here as president who have said things to me in quiet moments that are reinforcing of that and the importance of that. And it just keeps building it. They, and they say, never seen anybody do that before. Right. So that's not about like I was born perfect or something, or I'm some like deity. It's that I've learned over time. That's what really makes people pay attention. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes institutions work. People are paying attention. Right. So integrity, Another one, so that's kind of on the leadership side. One that's kind of on the management side, live within your means and grow your means. Okay, so I'm not saying fundamentally that growth is the answer to everything. So I put live within your means first. And I always believe that. That's a stewardship concept to me. That is purely stewardship. It's akin to sustainability. It's about being responsible with resources. So it has tentacles everywhere. So it sounds like just managing a budget, but it's way bigger than that. Live within your means, grow your means. Another one is fairness, justice, faith. I have kind of a, a package about how every single human being has a right to be validated, to feel important. You know, we all should have access to good health and all of that. It's not so political as that for me. It's more there's a certain justice about every individual. And so I try to pay attention to that. That one is really hot button. That is one that gets into a lot of controversial space and created the diffi most difficult space I ever had as, as president here. Um, another one. Um, what was that difficulty? I'll, I'll come back. Okay. Okay. If you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. No, too. no, no, that's, it's okay. I might. Um, so, uh, yeah. So uh, justice, equality, means, faith, uh, live within your means, grow your means, integrity. Um, oh, do the tough things first. Uh, this is one just so tough. Yeah. There's, is that a great statement? That's exactly the way I react to myself when I say it. Do the tough things first. Hey, that's tough. I yeah. mean, that plays on itself. Yeah. That's sort of like, yeah. That's sort of, no, that's, I just, I love that. Uh, it's, it's like a it's feedback. So it is. Yeah, it's a feedback. You know, it's, that's like one of the things I yeah. learned in life is like, you know, make yourself a list and the thing you don't want to do the first, do first. <laughs> I, I could say yeah. simply, make a list, yeah. right? right. And <laughs> either look at the top one or the bottom one. That's probably where you put the most difficult uh, one. Yeah. Right? I don't care where you did it, but I'll bet it's either at the top <laughs> or the bottom. Yeah. So I, I really believe in that. And I try, I try to live up to it. You can't always do it. And you're a lot of times you're trying to be expedient and get a few things done. But I think the point there is, if you address the tough things, you're probably going to have a cascading effect. It's probably going to be more productive than just the specific case that you're dealing with is probably going to emanate and multiply and so on. The tough stuff, people pay attention to that. Um, and, and so the list goes on. I, I, I'm not sure I have the list of 10 in my wallet, but I occasionally look at it and I've had a lot of people uh, react. So that's the compass. That's the compass. And I think the compass, the deeply uh, abiding connection to the institution and its mission the sense that I'm an ecologist and having the parts work together and optimizing that. These are the pack. This is the package 
that I carried in my heart and my head that helped me get through the tough stuff. I was dean for seven years. That's a pretty long time. That's an average 10 years. So I, I got to go through a lot of stuff. Yeah. And I, I didn't need to do it for 14 years, right? Um, president, I only got to do that for a little over a year. And the Board of Regents had a rule. They said to me and the other three finalists for the interim job, they said, you know, we're not going to interview you uh, if you want this job permanently because that's not what we're going to do. We're going to do a national search. That's just the way it is. So I went home and I thought about it and I said, no, I feel this calling. I feel this calling. It's right now. And whatever happens, happens. So they selected me for the job. And then, I don't know, there's a lot of letter writing and things all over the town and state about, come on, Steve's doing okay. Let's let him stay. Let's, and the regents refused. So it created a difficult moment at the end of that passage. Um, and then Diane got breast cancer. And we just had a lot of things that just took us off the rail. We just went behind the curtain. I went to work for the vice president for research and kind of stayed off the radar for a while. Um, and then when I came back, I went back into my faculty job. And it's been so incredibly rewarding. And I'd love to talk about that a little bit. A little bit more too, but staying on the staying on the leadership thing. Does that answer your question, or probably several questions? <laughs> uh, no, that's great. It's a it's a fascinating experience, and I would not trade it for anything. And my love for the institution is deeper than it ever was before, and that's a cool thing to have. All that, you know, the new president coming in, people are asking me all over the place. You know, so what do you what do you think about it? Well, I mean, he's coming from a non-academic institution. He's coming from private sector. So what's his name? With Scott and, Green, and he's coming from. Uh, he's coming from New York, and he's, he's a, a law firm. Yeah, and he's a UI grad, and he's a, a UI grad. It's an international uh, law firm as well. It, it is. So, so you just said the key word. That's the first thing I say to people. He will have an abiding connection to this institution. He was student body president, and he was um, a graduate. Can't ever take that away. I mean, how many things seem to be more meaningful to people in their lives than whatever it is, the football team or whatever about their alma mater? It's just so profoundly important to people. So uh, that abiding love, you know, you build on everybody else's love. It's an assumed accumulation of energy, and you live on it. You're like a bee going back to the hive every day. Right? Uh, uh, so he's going to have that. Scott's going to have that. I can't wait to talk to him about that and see how exuberant he is about that. Um, he's going to come from an environment uh, that's not academic. Difficult to... But it's a lot of lawyers. So has he been working with putting pushing wet spaghetti uphill? He has. He has. That's a good example. Yeah. So, okay. So I say, Scott, you're going to know instinctually and experientially a lot about how faculty operate. You spoke the word governance. That's extremely important. Faculty want to know you're going to share that governance with mm -hmm. them and the board. So you got that part right. You're going to run into some challenges that every single president at the university has had for the last 40 years. You know, why does everyone leave after four or five years? Well, there are some common challenges in Idaho, uh, the level to which the state supports education. Uh, the shenanigans that go on politically between the institutions that are played out at the board level. Um, these things, um, let me, I want to crystallize this. This is my view. Okay. What happens. So you're talking about just as a University of Idaho. Any, any president for a, for a university in Idaho oh, okay. will get, they will come in loaded with vinegar, sugar, salt, everything, vision, ready to fly, so excited. 
see the look on Scott Green's face, the pictures that were taken of him. He's so ready. He so wants to do this. Coming home. He's going to rerun it on that. <clears throat> but slowly but surely over time, he's going to transition from being all vision and excitement to being dashed and wondering why this couldn't happen, why there weren't enough resources to fund the vision, and management challenges that come from politics and whatever. He's going to inevitably shift from uh, a balance of high vision, low management, to high management, low vision, more frustration. So earlier I said tenure of CEOs has reduced. Well, so I want to generalize this. This is true everywhere in higher ed. It's become a position that's almost, you're almost unable to do it. The pressures are so big. They're so public and they're so in conflict with each other. Plus that higher ed is way out of touch with its main clients, students and their families. Is it affordable? No. Is it trashing out society's next generation as they try to get on their feet and buy homes and have cars and children? Yes, higher ed is the reason why they can't get where they want to go because they're carrying all this debt. So higher ed has got a lot of work to do. And then add to it the peculiarities of the political situation in Idaho related to, higher, to education. And you will have, uh, I believe, a person after five years who's going to be more frustrated. Um, but he may have the right stuff to bear this out for a longer period of time. I think I would have. I, there's no doubt in my mind that I would have, uh, despite the travails, despite the difficulties. So I wish him great luck and um, hope that he, hope that he's really successful. And you know, talking about how long somebody stays, it, that you know, that's their business, and there's a lot of factors in that. Let's not get freaked out because somebody's here for four years or eight years or 21 years. But yeah, sure, you might be able to have more of a lasting effect if you're here longer than five. It's my it's my opinion. Yeah, yeah. So, so is you give like a piece of advice to him? I think I just did offer. Oh, a few. okay. <laughs> uh, like, there's no like I was thinking like, <clears throat> and here's the thing: do the thing. But yeah, yeah, you did you did speak about quite a few. Well, things. Well, pay so. attention to the things that I spoke, and every former president will have their own perspective on this. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I have never had an incoming president since I left, and I left in 09, come to me and ask counsel. Interesting. Interesting. Is it because maybe you were interim? Uh, I, I prefer to just repeat that that's the case and wonder about it. Because um, it's that one like, of the first thing I did when I went in the interim was go seek out the last two people who were president and just have a conversation with yeah, us. Yeah, I would too. Like, what am I not seeing you're on the landscape? About, yeah, you talk about, uh, you know, such a, you know, how many people are university president? It's a small club. It's a small club. And it doesn't matter how long you were in. You get, you amass a certain experience uh, and quality that you can pass along. And, you know, they can take it or leave it. So I sort of feel like it would be cool. But you know what? I think the whole world, this culture of ours, we have a tendency, uh, we have a tendency to um, uh, uh, to let this happen. Whereas CEOs come in, and we move on. CEOs leave; they leave the environment; they go away, and they're never heard from again. But also, all that experiential quality is lost. That expert system is lost. That perspective should be of some value 
it can be filtered in any number of ways. And I, I think generally in the United States, we we don't do this very well. We don't we don't allow that counsel to take place between generations of leadership. And I think we could do a little better job of that. And that's not about wanting to be heard. That's about uh, I think our love of the institution could be played out even better if we add that into the mix. That's experiential knowledge. Uh, so we ought to be using it. Yeah. So we'll see whether uh, Mr. Green wants to have a conversation with Dr. Staben or or uh, the provost or, or anybody else. There's another piece uh, to this that I'm really cognizant of right now and spoke about in my retirement reception, and that's the ladder. Uh, so I stepped off the ladder. And I I realized uh, firsthand metaphorical ladder of uh, it, yeah it's a metaphorical ladder uh, of climbing uh, career, oh, okay. right. career ladder right mm-hmm. so went from presidency to interim presidency to working f- to start two centers uh, across three universities and then went back into my faculty position and I have over the period of nine years in which that has happened had almost everyone who's approached me has had a twist on their comment, on their inquiry about, oh, that must be tough, or, oh, that must be, it's not, wow, that's, wow, what have you realized? Or, oh, that's interesting, or, hmm, wow, so what did you step into? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I said the same thing. I can't imagine, like, the difficulties of those jobs, yeah. Yeah, so I felt, and this is very personal, this is extremely personal, I felt the weight of that sort of judgment and then I created my own, right? So I went to talk to a psychologist about it, and they said, oh, yeah, that's what we do, right? We, we look at that situation, and then we look for information to validate what we think is happening. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, I'm, yeah. I got my eyes open about it. But I do think we could, we could be more supportive of people who make a decision to move around in the system and find where they and what they are and what they have can be the best match for a place that needs something. That's where we are on fire. And it's not always at the top of the ladder or the next step on the ladder. And I have realized it in the returns to me and hopefully the returns to my students and my faculty colleagues back in my academic department. Wow, what an experience. Almost every day, a faculty member is encouraging me to speak what I see because they're perceiving that my filters are more numerous, that my experiences are more varied. My judgment and discernment might be more valuable than what they might be able to bring to a situation Mm. just because of the breadth of experiences. And so they're asking me for it and I'm shy about it and I'm reticent uh, because it feels out of place and feels sort of haughty and humility to me is something to strive for every single day, constantly. So I, I, uh, I've had a hard time with it, but my colleagues and the students who pour in my door see my studio and want to talk stories. It's so fulfilling. It's so fulfilling. All of those relationships are so fulfilling. When you're at the top of the ladder, there's a gap between you and all of those relationships. You have a lot of external relationships, but you don't know exactly what's motivating those relationships, right? Just how 
much those are friendships developing or how much those are just about the power base in which you reside or the thing that they might want to get or the barter that happens. Oh, because you have a title. Because you have it. Right. Because mm -hmm. you have it. So, uh, you know, I'm not cynical about that. That's just what it's like there. Um, but it's really, 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 really been cool to reflect on. Uh, I like I, I opened my comments at my retirement by saying I've had a lot of doctors tell me that men my age shouldn't be standing at the top of ladders. And <laughs> it, it creates curiosity and people kind of pause and go, what is he talking about? Right. And so I just kind of validate that and say, yeah, that's really true. Right. And they're shaking their heads. Yeah. Lots of men die falling off the ladders at age 70. But then I say, I'm pretty reflective about this in my career, too. And so there we go. Now we can have a conversation. It's, and it's really been fun. I, I appreciate this uh, opportunity to converse with you about it because you know how this goes. You're, you're always talking with people. Every time you share ideas about something or answer a question together, you're clarifying yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. So every time I tell this story, I hear it a little differently and it gets better, mm -hmm. more useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I love that you provide the opportunity. And I imagined that all of these things would come up when we started talking. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't listen to any of your other um, podcasts. Mm -hmm. uh, I just wanted to, you know, people said to me, why does Tom want to talk to you? Which I, I, I find I found all very interesting because I would say, yeah, why does he want to talk to <laughs> <laughs> why does he want to talk yeah, to me? I'm killing... trying to know what the first question was going to be. Yeah. <laughs> but I was determined to get to this stuff. And uh, you know what, Tom? You're you're very perceptive. Uh, you've got something because, uh, you know, we don't know each other, no, uh, no, right? Uh, no. I mean, we, we, we met very briefly when I dropped my wife off at work. One day. Yeah. And so we get a little bit of transference between us, uh, at least being the, the carrier of information. But... Um, so you put together pretty quickly um, in your note to me your career in environmental science and higher education, right? And bingo, that was, I looked at it and I said, that's the two stories. That's the two stories. And boy, are they intertwined because it's the ecologist that started out as the scientist who realized that the most powerful place he could be was living in the ecology as a whole with the humans in it. So off I went away from modeling forest systems and studying biology of forest growth and into how people in that ecosystem can actually be healthy together. And that's where my career has been. And so you can see how that's played out in my dean and president's positions. That's where my energy is coming from. If I can catalyze that to happen, all the tough and bad stuff, all the terrible decisions, all the losses that happen every week, get contextualized a little differently than a sum of bad juju. Hmm. They're just part of the job, but the job is still really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. So that's where I am. That's my reflection. Any retiring here in what, a month? June. June. End of June. And today's uh, April 27th. Yeah. <laughs> and who's counting? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a very busy two months to come finishing a few courses and uh that'll be very tearful i've been advisor uh to student club and that's very tearful um that's been incredibly rewarding they've they've been amazing um all these relationships rekindled with all these faculty members in ways that n i never had before as an administrator so special um, Diane and I heading off into new adventures. The retirement word seems so totally 
inappropriate. <laughs> yeah, uh, more I, work to do. I, I think the Peace Corps might be more work than than my faculty job. Yeah, uh, yeah. Both, country, you, both countries sure. say first dig your latrine and then you'll be sleeping on the floor for a while. You know, so it's like, yeah, I go camping all the time. I know what that is, but. Uh, Anyway, so that's that's what's happening. My daughter's going to be in Sweden for two years studying, uh, finishing her undergrad and getting a master's. And my son, who's remaining on the continent, is kind of looking at all of us and saying, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> but we're keeping our house in Moscow, and it's going to be so cool when we come back. you got to find somebody to live in it for two years. But it's going to be so cool when we come back to have that, to have this great community that you and I were discussing. Mm-hmm. And to just fall back in that mix. And here we go again with a whole new set of filters and experiences and things to talk with our friends about who've all been doing other interesting things. Mm -hmm. So we're really looking forward to that mix in retirement. Um, you made it. Made it. You made it. Two two months. You know? I got, mean, got, to, got to look both ways when I step gotta... off the corner. <laughs> Right, there are still trucks out there. But I mean, that this—I mean, what you're what you are accomplishing now with quote unquote retirement is yeah. just basically stopping your day to day job. Yeah, that's and right. that's—I mean—that's what we're all shooting for. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's right. So that I don't have to do that treadmill, but I'm taking all that cool stuff that you've been asking about, and I'm just like putting it in my backpack and going over the next mountain, right? Yeah, but at your own pace. At my own, well, sort of. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things about the Peace Corps. Out of all the service opportunities that Diane and I have explored and been involved in, and we've done quite a, quite a bit of that overseas, the uh, Peace Corps is the one, if you look at the mission, it's about building relationships for world peace. So the match with us is profound, and it backs off of this expectation that you're going to transfer the next technology or, you know, move to the next level on something. It's that you are living there, and for a year, you just shut up and listen and observe and be part of what they're doing and then start to mix in your stuff. And, and make some more lifelong friends. Make some more lifelong friends. In different parts of the world, that's the best. That are very expensive to get back to. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, you know, we're globetrotters, so we don't we don't ever want to stop doing that. We figure, buy your repatriation insurance, because eventually one of us is going to have to use it. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. That's getting your body back home. Oh, oh. <laughs> It's uh, in every oh, travel right. insurance uh, policy. Ah. It's roughly fifty seventy fifty to seventy thousand dollars to just to just get the body back. Yeah, that's man. not the burial. Yeah, which is still tens it's of thousands. Just, of it's dollars. just in the body of the airplane. Wow! And uh, so, have you heard about the new one that's kind of coming along? Washington's getting ready to pass. Uh, Washington State. Washington State's getting yeah. ready to pass a law that uh, you you can now uh, basically um, turn a body into. Uh, Humus, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that. I think the governor's going to sign it. I think that's the only state in the country right now that you can do it. But I don't know if he did sign it. Uh, <clears> I know it was on his desk last. Well, you're. I probably heard you yeah, talking about it. Yeah, I, I'm not. I, you know, now you say it. I'm not positive if he did sign it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it actually is law or, but yeah, where yeah. you actually they basically you you will become compost. Yeah, you put you're put into a compost system and you you turn over really fast so you don't have cemeteries you don't have incendiary buildings with uh dust dropped out airplanes you don't have any of that i mean i i have a feeling it would be it would take on really fast i think it will become 
you know how fast crem- cremation came on. I mean, it was incredible. I don't know what is it's got to be way more than half of the funerals are crem- cremation. Right? Oh, um, I well, uh, well, with any funeral, I have a brother who used to work in in a funeral home, mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I know it's less expensive because you don't have to build like a when you're buried in the ground, they have to put in like a cement barriers. Right. And I'm like, that's, that's not the way I want to go. Just, I just really just want put my body in dirt, make it go back to the, the earth. Ashes you know? to ashes, baby. That's, that's my thought, you know? <laughs> and if I can stay with all my bits, you know, that'd be even better. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So that's why I think it'll take off. Cause I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, you know, I would just assume, completely dissolve I, I don't like the idea of being a body closed up in something like just in case we've all seen the movie seen the movies yeah. right? <laughs> ah! <laughs> you know like uh, back in the was it the early 19 or early uh early 20th century maybe even late 19th century where they had a bell on the Oh, you're kidding. So you could read yeah, so you it, it if, if you were alive. Well, that makes sense because they didn't have anywhere near the way this well, Because people, they didn't really know when people were dead exactly. sometimes. Yeah. And they would just kind of, oh, you know. put a bell. Yeah. They're just comatose. <laughs> yeah. It's new to me. Yeah. Well, Steve, I think we, we talked. Is there anything that you want to add? Something <clears throat> that uh, you want to talk about then? Uh, so I would like to thank you for for this the this was the minute that you proposed this i was on it because i didn't know how it would be utilized and um to me just it's worth so much in terms of my own personal clarity right so it's great you are offering a culmination opportunity and so i've now been through it it's awesome thank you for that oh you're welcome yeah so now the Tomversations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what about it? Where where did it come from? Oh, um, uh, hmm. we were experimenting with the doing podcasts at uh, what was once Northwest Public Radio, now Northwest Public Broadcasting, and I said, "Hey, you know, I'd kind of like to do this this show, you know." And so I did several specs of it. I did about half a dozen, and it went nowhere. And so, I mean, I I liked it, but it was much more um, punchy. Was, Were they was, thirty minute things? Yeah, or? I would basically talk to somebody for about an hour. And it was live and cut it down. No, no, okay. no, no. And I kind of I'd, I'd edit it down to about uh, twenty minutes to half an hour. So cut out a lot of the the yeah. extraneous and just make it punchy, as they say. And it was good. I liked it, but it was a lot. It was just it was too much. I was putting too much effort into the editing part. And uh, it wasn't really sustainable as to, from just doing, you know, your day to day job mm. um, and doing that, talking to somebody for an hour and then having to edit it. And it's editing takes a long time. It's a long time. Um, so um, and I got very little feedback on it. So I'm like, well, OK, that, that went nowhere. And then so I said, OK, I'll make my own conversations. And I've been I've been playing with podcasts in many different varieties, you know, um, I bet I bet on maybe like a dozen of them, um, but not actually putting it out there, just staying in a studio, just like this and just kind of playing. Mm-hmm. And then um, I thought, you know, I'm going to do that conversations thing. I'm going to make that my own. And um, yeah, that's what I did. So, and I, and I've like, uh, there's a couple podcasts that I really like. One is uh, WTF with Mark Marin. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is uh, Joe Rogan podcast, um, the Joe Rogan experience. Mm-hmm. And, 
then I like that they're both long form. Um, WTF is about an hour, maybe mm -hmm. an hour, 20 minutes. And Joe Rogan will talk to somebody for four hours sometimes, just oh. sitting there in conversation. Yeah. And I'm like, I like that <laughs> model. I, because there's no, like, okay, if we're, like, if we're doing for, for work, I work in radio, if we're going to have five minutes on the air, you know, I might talk to you for uh, yeah. 10, yeah. maybe 15, yeah. but, you know, you're just trying to get a little bit. Yeah. And, and a five-minute piece is a lot of airtime. Yeah. And so, you know, well, I want to, and something I noticed when I did that originally was that people, mm -hmm. after about the first 10 minutes, people are very, very, um, um, stiff they're not comfortable they're like what is what is he going to ask me am i going to say something stupid um <laughs> and, and and then with this i've noticed that after about an hour people you can really see a body change yeah. after about an hour people just like they get more comfortable in the seat you know they start feeling more like oh okay this is not you know i'm not going to ask you to to uh i'm not going to uh try to trip you up with a question yeah um, my thing is i want stories experiences and knowledge yeah. and then because it's kind of like a free education for me it's kind of a, you know, kind of a personal thing, but put it out there and see what happens to it. So, cool. I mean, we'll see, you know, I'm, I, I, it's had some growth and it's had some dips, but, yeah. you know, a lot of it depends on the topic. So this shows up if I went out on a pod, I'm, I'm not, I'm, my kids are on podcasts constantly. I, I just haven't found a way that fit that into my life. But if I went out on, yeah. onto one of these apps that have all the podcasts, you're sure Apple. you show up out there or something. Yeah. And yeah, I am on a Podbean. Podbean. Podbean is uh, the platform that's uh, well, or the website that I use for which hosts the the web my uh, content, mm -hmm. and then there's a website very basic, create it there, and then you know upload it, but it costs money. I mean they don't do oh. it for free because uh, well you can do it for free, but that's very limited amount of um, data you can upload. So with this, this is a lot of data. Uh -huh. I mean, we're looking right now, we've been talking for two hours. Uh -huh. So that's a lot of information in an MP3 format. Then you upload it and uh, host it. And then it spreads out, goes to iTunes, goes to I mean, all kinds of different places. But it's on Podbean, uh -huh. and that's one of the apps you can use, yeah. Huh. Podbean. Yeah, and it's uh, it's well, been good so yeah. far. I mean, everybody who's been gone through this as oh this is great yeah so yeah, <laughs> yeah I, that's that's true and so I, I did look at i mean nancy cheney is a very good friend jim bull is a very good friend and, yeah uh, i like both of them they're cool. great oh they're amazing people god we were so lucky to have nancy cheney as a oh, as a god. as a mayor i really th i'm oh. just listened to her talk I'm like she wow oh yeah and jim Bolin is uh you know he he gets it no holds barred jim's just Go the next, go the next level, go the next level, go the next level. He's an amazing guy. So, this is really, this is really awesome. Good. I don't know what I'm gonna do now. Wow, amazing. I'm gonna sit in my backyard and look at the sky. I guess. Pretty much pulled it all together. It's been great. Good. Good. Yeah. I'm glad. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Pretty interesting life, wouldn't you say? Very knowledgeable man, Steve Daly Larson. Thanks again, Steve, for coming in. And thank you for listening to Conversations. And thanks to our sponsor, Moscow Brewing Company. I think that's all. Got anything else? Nope. Uh, that'll do it. I'm Tom Cocaine. Over and out.